God's Word. This morning we're going to look at Song of Songs, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This will be a topical message, but I will allude to this passage. Song of Songs, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This is God's inspired and errant authoritative word. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, I pray for this congregation like the Apostle Paul prayed for the Christians in Ephesus, that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant that these dear saints would be strengthened with power through your Spirit in their inner being, so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith, that they, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and height and length and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. And we pray this confidently in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. If I were to ask you to put together a list of the top ten most difficult doctrines to understand, I wonder what you might include on your list. Perhaps the creation of the universe in six days, original sin, God's absolute sovereignty over all things, maybe the doctrine of total depravity, how about limited atonement? Election, predestination, how about double predestination, or how about supralapsarianism versus infralapsarianism? <laughs> I wonder what might, doctrines you might include on your list. One of my professors at Trinity wrote a book, D.A. Carson, and it's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. When I ask you to put together a list of difficult doctrines to understand, I doubt if any of you put on your top ten list the love of God as one of your difficult doctrines. We usually think that the love of God is one of the easier doctrines to understand. I mean, even little children can understand, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We tend to think that sovereignty is difficult, election is difficult, but I want to insist that these aren't even in the same league as the love of God. This is what Paul Washer says. People talk about the greatest act of faith as raising the dead or walking on water. I've seen many extraordinary works of God, but in my opinion, what takes the greatest act of faith on the part of the believer, and then he says, speaking for myself, is to look into the mirror 
the mirror of God's word and see my stumbling and see my failure and see my need and to believe his promises, the declarations about his love that he has made towards me, that he honestly and genuinely and truly and infinitely and unconditionally loves me. I agree. And I think one of the reasons why it takes such great faith to believe that God loves us unconditionally is because this kind of love is totally foreign to our culture. Our default setting is, I will love you if you're beautiful. I will love you if you're successful. I will love you if you're inspiring. Simply put, in our understanding, as we live day to day around us, love needs to be merited. It needs to be earned. Perhaps you can relate to the man who said, I grew up in a home where if you got a 98 on your test, you were asked, why didn't you get 100? Why did you miss these two questions over here? Or if you scored 20 points in a basketball game, why didn't you score 30 points? Maybe you can relate to that. I was at a baseball game the other day, and one of the kids struck out. Nothing unusual, kids strike out every single game. And I could hear a dad saying under his breath, he cursed many said his son's name. To make matters worse, next batter came up three, four pitches. He was still cursing his son under his breath. I wanted to walk over and say, what are you doing? But that's our culture. If you want to be loved, you, you need to earn it. And because love and our experience has to be earned, I want to give you five characteristics of God's love so that you can have a proper biblical understanding of God's love. And then I want us to consider two or three benefits that we can derive from this love. So obviously there's a lot of points here. I've been away for a while, so they've been accumulating. Um, so they'll be, they'll be in rapid succession. But number one, God's love is eternal. God's love is eternal, which means it never had a beginning, and it will never have an end. Paul says in Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then here's where he begins. Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then mark this. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Before God ever laid the foundations of the world, before God ever said, let there be light, he already predestined his children to be adopted into his family. He already set his love and affection upon his elect in Christ. I love what John Owen says in his book, Communion with God. He says, it was from eternity that he laid in his own bosom a design for our happiness. The very thought of this is enough to make all that is within us, like the babe in the womb of Elizabeth, to leap for joy. 
a sense of it cannot prostrate our souls to the lowest abasement of a humble, holy reverence and make us rejoice before him with trembling. God has loved you in Christ before he ever created the world, and he will love you 10,000 years from now. God will never stop loving you in part because he never started loving you. In the mind and heart of God, that's all he's ever known for you if you are in Christ. So God's love is eternal. Number two, God's love is unconditional. That means you have not done anything to earn it. This is what we read in Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, talking about Israel. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Simply put, God loved you because he loved you. And you say, what kind of logic is that? That is biblical logic. God loved you just because he wanted to love you. The love originates from God himself. And this is important. Just recently, I was listening to a man counsel a woman about God's love for this woman. And he was reminding this woman of something that Tim Keller has said. If, you're, if your spouse ever says to you, why do you love me? Don't say, because you're so good looking. Because what's going to happen over time? It's going to happen to all of us, I hate to tell you. Why do you love me? Don't say, because you're so successful. What if all of a sudden you're not successful? Because you're so strong. What if all of a sudden you're, you're not strong one day? Why do you love me? Because you're, the proper biblical answer is, I love you because I love you. I love you because that's what God has called me to do, and it has nothing to do with who you are. Why does God love you? Not because you're good looking, not because you're rich, not because you're successful. God loves you because he loves you, which is to say he loves you unconditionally. He has nothing to do with who you are. It has everything to do with who he is. God is love, so he loves you. And I hope that sets you free. You are not earning God's love by anything that you are, by anything that you do. God simply loves you because he loves you. That's good news. And since you did nothing to merit God's love and affection, you can't do anything to lose it. So God's love for you is unconditional. Number three, God's love is perfect and complete. I don't know the best way to say this. In other words, there is nothing lacking in God's love for you. Or we could say it this way. God loves you just as much as he loves his son. 
think of God's perfect love for his son. Is anything lacking in the love of the father for the love of the son? There's nothing lacking in that love. And it is that love in Christ that God has for you. In John 17, we have what is commonly known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And in the very last verse, this is what Jesus says, speaking to the Father, John 17, 26. I made known to them your name. Not just your name, Yahweh or Jehovah, but meaning I have made known to them who you are. And I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them. That the love which you have loved me may be in them. Jesus wants you to experience the love of the Father that he enjoys from his Father. In Song of Songs 4-7, Groom says to his bride, you are all together beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. When your bride, Jesus Christ, looks at you, he doesn't see a single flaw. And you're thinking, he must be blind. <laughs> because I have all kinds of flaws and shortcomings but he doesn't see any, when the father looks at you, he doesn't see any flaws whatsoever. If he did see any flaws, he couldn't look at you. He couldn't love you. But when he looks at you, he sees that you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when he looks at you in Christ, there's no flaw whatsoever. Some of you older folks are worried about wrinkles, right? No wrinkles whatsoever. Some of us are getting more and more gray hair. People are talking about how white my beard is. No gray hair, no, no white beard, no flaws whatsoever. No scars. God looks at you. Jesus looks at you. You are flawless. His love for you is perfect, the same love that the Father has for a son. And number four, God's love is unchanging. And this is just my way of underscoring the previous three points. It only stands to reason if his love is eternal, if it never had a beginning, if it doesn't have an end, if it's unconditional, if it has nothing to do with what you've done, whether good or bad, if it is perfect, if it's the same love that the Father has for the Son, then it just stands to reason that it will not change. In Hebrews 13, 8, we read that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his love for you is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It will not change. Regardless of what you do, it will not change. Now, some of you might be thinking, no, I'm not really feeling that love today. It is possible through your sin to, to quench the Holy Spirit, to grieve the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, what changes is not God's objective love for you. What changes is your subjective experience of that. 
So that, that can change over time. But here's what you need to know. God loves you just as much today as he did yesterday, even if last night you had the worst night of your entire life. If you're a Christian, God loves you just as much this morning as he did yesterday, even if you're not feeling it. It doesn't change. His love for you is consistent. And then I want to add one more. Number five, God's love is passionate. And I'm adding this one to clarify that God's love is not casual, lukewarm. I, I guess I, I need to love them. Jesus died for them, so I, I need to love them, and I need to welcome them into the family reluctantly. I want you to know God's love for you is, is passionate. And that's why I was thinking of Song of Songs. Listen to chapter 4, verse 9. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. And some of you remember when you were first in love, just one glance of her eyes, and you were just captivated. And then he goes on to say, with one jewel of your, of your necklace. This, this groom is absolutely ravished with his bride. And if you were to read through Song of Solomon, you would feel like you are eavesdropping on passionate young love because they are just bold in their declaration of their love for one another. In fact, that they, are, they are so bold and even a little bit explicit that it would make you want to blush and that some of you, if I read it out loud, parts of it right now, you would kind of look down a little bit because they are just straightforward, passionate, unashamed about their, their love for one another. And because they are so passionate about their love for one another, it's interesting that in the history of interpretation, I think many have been uncomfortable. Many of the rabbis said, this can only be interpreted as an allegory. This, this is only talking about God's love for his covenant people, Israel. And as a result of that allegorical interpretation, there really have been some bizarre um, interpretations coming out of that. Uh, for example, one rabbi in the passage that talks about the bride's belly being compared to a heap of wheat. And you, have, you have to remember, this is ancient poetry. You probably don't want to, probably don't want to try it today on your bride because I wouldn't come across as a compliment. But it, trust me, thousands of years ago, this, this was seen as a, as a compliment when her nose was described like the tower of whatever. You know. But this is what one of the rabbis said in talking about her belly that's compared to a heap of wheat. That represents the 70 members of the, of the Sanhedrin. Or Song of Songs 113, where we read, My beloved is to me a, a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. Some of the rabbis said that her two, rep, two breasts represent the cherubim on each side of the Ark of the Covenant, while the sachet represents the Shekinah glory. The Christian allegorical interpretation has said that her two breasts represent the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the sachet between them represents Christ. 
And I think part of it was they were just embarrassed by this book of the Bible, which causes us to ask the question, why is this book included in the canon of Scripture? And I think there, there are two basic reasons. Number one, it is included to celebrate the beauty of marital love between a husband and a wife. It is a straightforward set of poems between Solomon and his bride, the Shulamite woman. Unabashed celebration of the love of a husband and a wife. But secondly, it is an illustration of the un, um, almost unimaginable passionate love that God has for his people or that Jesus has for his bride, the church. But I say that not by way of allegory, but by way of typology. So in other words, there doesn't have to be a one-to-one -one correlation, you know, between her belly or other parts of her body. It's a type. Just like the Passover lamb is a, is a type of Christ. Just like the Passover lamb was, was slaughtered so that we could be forgiven. Jesus would give his life so that we could be forgiven. Or the bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness so that everybody who would look to the bronze serpent in faith would be saved. Jesus Christ would be lifted up on the cross so that everyone who looked to him in faith would be, would be saved. There doesn't have to be an exact one-to-one -one correlation between the type and the anti-type. I, I can still remember years ago, we were at the Began's home, and we were going through the book of Daniel, and King Nebuchadnezzar was described as the king of kings. And I remember saying, Nebuchadnezzar is a type of Christ. And I won't mention any names, but Sue Began gave me a funny look. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it was kind of like, Nebuchadnezzar, a type, of, a type of Christ, but he is indeed called the king of kings. And his kingdom is described like the kingdom of Christ. It's the greatest kingdom that exists at that time in all the earth. And, and I just explained simply that the type doesn't have to be an exact one-to-one -one correlation. He's the king of kings, like Jesus Christ would become the king of kings, because he has this great empire ruling over the earth. So there's not an exact one-to-one -one correlation. It's just that this passionate marriage that we're seeing between two real people is an illustration showing us God or Christ's passionate love that he has for his bride the church. He gets excited over you. In Zephaniah 3, we see that he sings over you. That's hard to take in. We love singing to God, but you ever think about him singing over you? That's how much he loves you. He is passionate about his love for you, and that's why I titled this message, God's Incomprehensible Love. Because this is almost too much to take in. That God could love me and all my faults and failures that much. It is not an easy doctrine. It's not easy at all. I know it's easy to give the Sunday school answer. Like I said earlier, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But to really feel like a beloved child of God, that's not easy. My opening prayer, I don't know if you 
were paying close attention was from Ephesians 3. And Paul was praying for the believers. And he was praying that they would be strengthened. He was praying that they would have power in their inner being. For what purpose? So that they could comprehend the height, the length, the width, the depth of the love of Christ. He was praying that they would have the power of the Holy Spirit helping them to understand the love of Christ. He didn't see it as something easy. He said, you need prayer to understand this kind of love. You need power. And then he prayed this, that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What might he mean by that? To know a love that surpasses knowledge. I think he said, I want you to experience in the core of your being. Not just know it in your head so that you, you, can, you can give the right answer, but to really experience it in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit so that if someone were to ask you, does God love you? You, you would answer without hesitation and with conviction. He does. He does. I don't know why, but he does. And if you've been wondering what, what I've been studying on my dissertation, one of the things that I've been studying is the experiential theology of the Puritans. And it has been very helpful. And I think it's a wonderful corrective, especially to the Reformed community, because we really are big on doctrine and making sure that we have all our theological, you know, I's dotted and T's crossed and have everything in a straight line so that we are precise with our doctrine. And as Michael reminded, that is important. But if you have all that lined up, if you have your theological ducks lined up in a row, but you haven't experienced that, if it's, if it's not real to you in the core of your being, then you really have to wonder, am I a child of God? Because God communicates his love to his people. What would we think of a father who had a son who wouldn't communicate that love to a son or a daughter, even just by saying, I love you. Right? You haven't seen your kids for a while, like some of us, you know, and you see that, I love you. Right? We saw Caleb this last weekend. He, he was in a show, and, and we said goodbye, and, and we said our hugs, and, and Michelle's like, I'm going to need one more hug. And I thought, oh, no, we're going to miss our plane. But... <laughs> You want to communicate that love. God doesn't just say that he loves us so that we understand it in our heads. God communicates that love by way of the Holy Spirit, and it's real. I don't want to overemphasize experience, but he communicates it. And I believe D.A. Carson is correct in another book that he wrote called The a call to spiritual reformation where he says, talking about Ephesians 3, what Paul is praying is that these believers would experience God's love. That's how they would know a love that surpasses knowledge because it would be something that they would experience. Jonathan Edwards liked to use the analogy of honey. How do you know that honey is sweet? It's simple. Take a teaspoon. We bought some honey the other day. I've been taking a teaspoon a day. Open it's helping with my allergies. 
How do I know that honey is sweet? I've experienced it. I don't need to give some explanation of the properties involved in honey that make it it's sweet. I, I don't think I could tell you them. But what I could tell you, it's sweet. It is? Yeah, try a spoonful. God loves you. And I think Paul wants us to know that he, he loves us because of the experience of that. D.A. Carson talks about R.A. Torrey, who was one of the presidents of Moody Bible Institute. He said one time he earnestly sought God's face. And one day, while he was reading the scriptures and praying, he was so overwhelmed with the profound consciousness of God's love for him that he began to weep and weep. Eventually, he asked God to show him no more. He could not bear it. He was overwhelmed overwhelmed with God's love for him that he saw in the pages of scripture. And that's important. Jonathan Edwards, again, would, would talk about wanting to raise the affections of the people in his congregation as high as, as possible, but only in proportion to the truth. So here's the truth, and I want you to feel it. I want you to know it with your affections, not just your head. And I think that's what Paul wants us to know. God's love for us, it's passionate, it's, it's real. When God communicates that love for you, you know that he loves you. Not just because you read it in your head, but you know it in the depth of your being. And when you know God's love for you in that kind of way, it, it will set you free in some wonderful ways. Just really quickly, one of, the, one of the benefits is freedom to fail. When I spoke at the graduation of Trinity Oaks Christian Academy a couple, couple years ago, I, t I told the class, I said, I want to hear that you guys do a lot of failing in the years to come. And what I've been is I want you guys to take a lot of, a lot of risks. Take a lot of risks because you're, you're not afraid of failing. I can still remember, sorry for another baseball analogy, but I can still remember seeing Zach was up to bat. I was over in Johnsburg. I can still remember, clear as can be, I was coaching first base. He took the biggest swing I ever saw him take. I, that was awesome. He missed the ball, but that, that was awesome. And as Christians, God, God wants us to maybe go out on a limb and, and do something for him. In Luke 19, there, there's a parable. And Jesus says, to one man was given five minas, currency in ancient Israel. To, an, to another man was given two, and to another one was given one. And then the master came back, and he came to the one who was given five. And he said, what did you do with the five minas that I entrusted to your care? And he said, I've gained five more. And he said, well done, good and faithful servant. And then he came to the one who was given two minas, and and he said, what did you do with the two minas that I entrusted to your care? And he said, see, I've gained two more for you. Well done, good and faithful servant. And then, and then he came to the one who was given one mina. And he said, what, what have you done with the mina that I gave you? And, and this is what he said, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He was given this money. He was given a gift. And, and what did he do with it? He, 
put in the handkerchief. He, he buried it because he was afraid of the master because he's austere. He's harsh. He's an angry man. And I think he was afraid to fail. He didn't see that the master is loving. The master wasn't returning to say, what have you done with my money? I hope you have invested it wisely because I'm looking for a return on my investment. And if there's not a return on my investment, you are in trouble. He didn't understand the heart of the master at all. And because of that, I think he was paralyzed by fear and he was afraid and he didn't do anything. Your father isn't like that. Not at all. If you strike out, he's not going to come to you cursing. How could you have done that? Did you see all the scouts who were there? You blew it. You know what he's going to say? Man, that was an awesome swing. Maybe next time you'll connect. That was awesome. I'm so proud of you. Stepping up to the plate. Giving it your best shot. Good for you, son. That's, that's your heavenly father. He's a loving heavenly father. And then there's another one. Freedom of hatred from the world. Jesus said, if they hated me, know that they will hate you. But here's the thing. A desire to be loved is another one of those inescapable categories. In other words, we, we all want to be loved. We might as well just admit it. We all want to be loved. But if we can have, if we can experience the unconditional love of God, whether we strike out, whether we hit it out of the park, if we know, regardless, God loves me because his love for me is unconditional. It's not based on my performance. If we can be secure in that love, it doesn't matter if the world hates me. Because I am loved by my Father. We won't be desperate for the approval of this, of this world. We can say it's nice to have it, but if I don't have it, that's okay. And then just one more. Freedom to fellowship with God. Freedom to fellowship with God. And here's something I've been thinking about with my dissertation as well. Currently, I'm reading through John Owen's great book, Communion with God. But if you're going through the one-year Bible, you came across this verse, and it, it hit me in a new way. You know how it is when you're meditating on a subject. All of a sudden, you, you have greater clarity when you read a verse. But I, I like this. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're a Christian, you were called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. You weren't just called into the service of Jesus Christ. You weren't just called to live a holy life. You are called to serve him. You are called to live a holy life. But you are also called to fellowship with him. God wants you to join in the fellowship of the Trinity and enjoy that. He wants you to enjoy his company. He wants to enjoy your company. I wonder if you believe that. God longs to spend time with you. And maybe that's, that's hard to believe. Paul Washer tells a story about his childhood, and he, 
And he says he had a very, very trying, difficult childhood. But he said God has been merciful and he has restored the years that the locusts have eaten. And then he said he got married. He had a, a young son. And he said one day he walked into the bedroom of his, of his young son. And, and he said his son turned around and went, just opened his arms. And he said when his son did that, he said God spoke to him. And then he said, I rarely say that God has spoke to me, so I can say it with authority. He said, but God spoke to me. And this is what Washer says God said. You were once like that when you were a little boy. You had no doubt in your mind that if you stretched open your arms, that the person you were stretching out to would run to you and pick you up. But you were beaten. You were abused, and you lost that. But now... I am here, and I am your father. And then I'm going to try to say it in the way that Paul Washer said it. There will never be a time when you stretch out your arms that I will see you as dirty. There will never be a time when you stretch out your arms that I will not come running to you. It doesn't matter what you do. There will never be a time. Do you understand me? Just like this little boy, not one doubt enters into his mind that his father is going to run across the bedroom and sweep him up in his arms and dance with him. I want you to know, son, that is exactly what I am going to do for you always and unconditionally. Amen. When you understand God's love, you are free to fellowship with him. Here's what I want you to know. Regardless of what you have done, regardless if you are a Christian, if you open your arms to the Father and say, Father, will you come to me? Will you help me? Will you meet with me? He will not stiff arm you. He will run to you. He will embrace you. He will dance with you. He will never say no. Never. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And when you can know that, you will be set free in ways that we've only begun to understand. I think it's the greatest thing in all the world to be loved by God. What, what could be greater than for you to be loved by your Father in heaven and your older son, Jesus Christ, or your groom? Jesus, what could be greater than that? You know, another verse I was reflecting on recently, and it's actually a passage. But it's interesting how this came to mind. I was thinking of Romans 8, 35 to 30, where Paul says, What shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able 
to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this is what I was thinking about. Why did he say nothing will separate us from the love of God? Why did he say nothing will separate us from the grace of God, or the mercy of God, or the kindness of God? All, all those are wonderful, but it's interesting that in this passage we, we have three references to the love of God. I think Paul is saying this because if you're a Christian, what you want to know more than anything else is this love that God has for me, is there any possibility at all that anything will be able to separate me from this love? Because this is the greatest thing there is, and I don't want to lose it. Is there anything that will separate me from this love? And Paul is saying, nothing. Nothing will ever separate you from this love. Rest assured, this love is constant, it's eternal, will never change, never fade, never go away. Nothing will take away this, away this love. Now this morning, I, I've been talking about the love that we have as believers. If you're here this morning and you're, you're not a Christian or you're not sure that you're a Christian, here's what I want you to know. The Bible is so clear that if you come to him, he will not cast you out. Anybody who comes to him. He will welcome. If you go to him, open arms are waiting for you. So I've blown it. I've strayed. That's why Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son. He blew it living in the pig pen, squalor, immorality, wasted all his money, finally came to his senses. I should go back to my father. He comes back and he thinks, Maybe I can just be a servant in the house. He comes back, and the father not only welcomes him with open arms, but when the father sees them in the distance, what's the father do? You remember? It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? He runs to him. He lifts up his cloak, and he runs to the son. He embraces him, and he kisses him, and the son starts to repent. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, and the father doesn't even let him finish his speech, and he just says, kill the fatted calf, put a ring on him, get a robe, we're going to celebrate. My son has come home. If you come to your senses and you come to God, I want you to know what kind of God is waiting for you, a God who is gracious, merciful, and forgiving, as we said earlier. That's the kind of God who is waiting for you, and he will embrace you and bring you into his family. This, this is the loving God that we serve. I know it's almost too good to be true, but I do pray that by God's spirit we can know that it is indeed true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, and I do pray again with Paul that you would strengthen us in our inner beings so that we could understand this almost unimaginable, incomprehensible, passionate love that you have for us. Father, may we understand it. May we experience it. May it transform our life so that it affects how we live. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.